And thank you for joining us for the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Canada Day. Yes, it's July 1st, and we wanted to uh, give everybody the opportunity to spend as much of their Canada Day listening to the program rather than trying to frantically dial in. So we've got an email edition of the show planned for you today. Of course, my name is Chris Sumner. I'll be co-hosting alongside our usual host of the Lawn and Garden Journal, Carla Hersina. And good morning, Carla. Good morning. And we want to start our program like we always do with your usual poem. How about you take it away? Thank you. Well, it is now into July and we are still in our gardens. So please listen. My July Garden. Our bird feeders hold golden seeds for birds who sing their silvery songs in the trees. Some chickadees flew toward the feeder as more birds waited to get their share of seeds. A blackbird hidden among the leaves of the trees called out and I looked up and around. At a close by woodland suddenly, a wondrous light dazzled the shimmery ground. Blueberry plants on the back steps now need to be put into the rich dark brown earth. In the sun, blueberries sparkle the enchant the world with celestial blue mirth. Memories of lavender by the house last year brings thoughts of old castles in France. A dish has water with a stone where butterflies catch the sun's reflected glance. On a swaying bough, a wind chime plays like a music in a blue summer breeze. Boiled pots hold plants and dream. They bloom into scarlet splashes of brilliant poppies. A cardinal kissed his bride right on her red sunlit lips painted beak so bright. In the green grass, they loved having bread crumbs. Then after sharing in turns, they took a flight. My petunias are a chorus of antique peak and coral underneath windows. Those beautiful flowers sing a song in the side by side in a shining show. Astonishing roses opened and are loved, dressed up in pure perfume cherry red amidst the husk back sh- backyard in their shiny home. Our roses have an earthen bed. You'll find deep midnight blue pansies on the quiet patio winking up at us. They peek secretively above clay pots from morning till about the hour of dusk. Butterflies with lemony homespun wings float by in the sunshine while they visit on petals and at sunny spots by a brook under the blue skies. They sit a bit. My pretty flowery garden is heaven dancing a dance in summery July. I wish upon a star could maybe blossom here and shine the happy full moon bright and as we always do after we have carla open the show with our usual poem we take a break to share with you the latest in gardening events in the garden club circuit calendar On the Garden Club calendar today, we are pleased to direct you to some pretty exceptional gardens. Now, whether you're an active gardener or not these days, I think we can all appreciate a well-thought-out garden, those little mini paradises that uh, we dream up in the backyard. And you'll find them on ordinary streets behind some average houses, nothing to indicate anything special. So I would encourage, if you have the chance, definitely worth checking out 
a garden tour this season. Now, the Manitoba Master Gardeners, uh, they will be hosting garden tours on July 15th, and they have 11 gardens confirmed in Old Fort Garry and the Kildonan areas. Be prepared to be inspired. Tours are available from 9 to 4. Tickets will be $20 on the Manitoba Master Gardener website and uh, select retailers. Brandon Garden Club, they are hosting their citywide open garden tours July 22nd through the 23rd, allowing gardeners to share their hard work and care. You can see their website for a map of available gardens. We are not taking calls this morning here on the Lawn and Garden Journal. Today, Carla Hersina and Chris Sumner bring you the email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal, and we'll get back to the show right after this. Welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal, and happy Canada Day, and thank you so much for making time on your Canada Day long weekend to allow us to be a part of your celebration. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting the Lawn and Garden Journal today with our usual host, Carla Hersina. The reason being is it's a special email edition of the show. All the questions that we are answering today have come in via email so far this season, and Carla, uh, you know, up until recently, it has been really dry. Like, it has been a dry start to the gardening season. And yeah, there's been some spotty rain here or there. But overall, what is your rule of thumb for watering the garden and your pots when we're dealing with dry conditions like this? Well, when we're dealing with very dry conditions, you want to remember um, regular watering regimes, especially for if you've got your new plant starts in the garden, they need that moisture. Their roots are not elongated into the soil yet enough to grab that extra. So I generally say if it's in the mid-20s, twice a week is a good steady one if the plants have been established. If we get into the 30s, you might be out there three times a week. And it depends also on the size of the plant's rooting system. So it's a little bit of a... Um, yeah, it's a little bit of work to think because sometimes plants get overwatered and some plants get underwatered. But just take a look because wilt can be an indicator of being overwatered or underwatered. So best rule of thumb, put your hands in the soil, pull them away either from the garden to see if there's any moisture underneath that dry crust. Or you're going to be checking your hanging baskets and containers probably on a daily basis because these containers above ground dry out a lot faster than what's in the ground. So take a check, take a peek every day. It's best morning or evening to do your uh, checking. I like watering first thing in the morning. It allows the moisture and the coolness of the days to pull up that moisture a little bit faster than in the afternoon where you have high evaporation. And that was one thing I was going to ask you about, the timing of watering. It's a question I know you've had in the past. Is it a bad thing, Carla, to be doing your watering during the peak heat of the day, you know, in that 3 to 5 p.m. zone? Like, are you doing any detriment to your garden or your pots? I, well, in some cases, it's not real. It's kind of a detriment because a waste of water is probably the number one thing is if you're watering at the hottest point of the day, especially with using a sprinkler or a broadcast sprayer, you're not getting directly to the soil and there's a lot of evaporation that could happen. And even if the water gets on the leaves, the high evaporation that's happening on there 
doesn't really benefit the plants at all. So try and water earlier in the morning and even at some point do direct watering to soil first than going to the plant. Uh, I really love soaker hoses. Uh, If you don't know what the soaker hose is, it's like a flattened hose that has perforations on one side. And I love flipping it upside down. So I do like a slow, steady drink in targeted areas of rather my perennial beds or some trees and shrubs beds rather than spraying upwards, get direct focus to the ground. Now, you mentioned that crust when we're talking, uh, you know, our flower beds or our vegetable gardens. And this may seem like a fairly obvious question and answer, but that crust that can form, is that something that we should be trying to periodically break up in order for there to be better water absorption? You got it. That's perfect. A little example, because yes, that crust, actually, if you do get moisture off that hard crust that's in your garden, you're probably going to see that you think you're watering a lot. But what happens is that crust causes a uh, shedding effect. It will actually flow over the top of the surface and it doesn't get down into the soil itself. So giving it, get it, you're, you know what, you're going to do two benefits, Chris. You're going to actually get the garden hoe out, break up that crust. And at the same time, you're going to disrupt weed development and then you're going to water so that the water has more contact to go down deeper in the soil rather than run off. You had mentioned uh, a few signs of whether you're watering too much or not enough, a wilt being one of those sides on either side of that coin. If uh, one of our gardening friends is taking a look at their veggies or perhaps even their uh, annuals in their flower beds, and I realize generalizations when it comes to gardening is a dangerous thing uh, there, Carla, but if we're seeing yellowing of leaves, could that also be a sign of over or underwatering? Yeah, yellow leaves are both indicative of either overwatering or underwatering. That's why we have to get tactile. We have to touch things and see what the medium or what the soil is doing. Or the other side of it, if you think that you're not overwatering or if you're not underwatering, also remember that yellowing leaves during the summer could be stress of poor nutrients or bugs uh, attacking that leaf structure and sucking out the good nutrients on there. So there's also indicators too. So it's not just yellowing of overwatering or underwatering. There could be some other factors as well. So we have to be diligent and keep our eyes uh, appeal for what may be happening. Uh, I know I've seen even in my own annual flower beds and in my pots, Carla, that sometimes it, it looks like the plant, and I don't know if this is related to watering or heat stress, it looks like it's uh, aborting the flower buds or there's that flower blasting where it just seems to blow the bud right off the stem. Is that related to this kind of heat stress and dryness that we have been seeing in recent weeks? Yeah, it could be. A lot of the heat stress plays a factor on it, and it is that instinctual insect instinct for survival. Uh, A lot of fruit, fruiting things will do this too as well. If it's not getting the proper moisture or the uptake into the cells portion of the plant, the first sort of the survival instinct is abort flowers, abort fruit to save the plant. So we know it and it's notorious even on some hanging baskets. The first thing that we lose if you're plant and especially hanging baskets and containers, the first thing is if it dries out too much, Oh, no, there goes the bacopa, there goes the labelia. It's stressed, so it gives up that bloom first. 
Well, let's transition a little bit uh, from talking about watering. And and specifically, we had a question come in in the last couple of weeks, uh, Carla, which lines up with when we see this particular weed at its yellowest and fluffiest. Uh, We had someone email, my lawn has been taken over by dandelions, like really bad. That's the quote. There's more dandelion plants in spots than actual grass or turf or sod. This person wanted to know, am I at the point where I need to start fresh by tilling or killing off the lawn and either seeding or sodding? What What is your recommendation? Well, taking control of the weeds, because yes, we've seen the yellow patterning of, of the weed seeds and the dandelions, but not to make joke of it or make go through, but some of the dandelions we know are beneficial for the weeds or for bees for pollinating. But there are teas that can be made with uh, uh, the dandelion or we know that dandelion wine or even salad but if it gets to the point where it is a little bit of a more of a nuisance side of it rather than um, the other side of it uh, I know I, I I was trained young at a young age when my mom gave me a little bit of a knife and sort of said okay we're going to go and dig the dandelions and we would spend hours in conversation of gardening just sitting on the lawn and and picking through the dandelions but it may get to the point where it's a little bit too much at that aspect. So there are things that you can do, um, encouraging probably stronger yards, yards that are not lish, uh, sort of lush and thicker in uh, turf or grass blades, have more of a tendency to grab those dandelion seed heads that get to the soil basis and have chance to germinate. So encouraging further vigorous growth, overseeding. Uh, I think if you... If it's very aggressive if you want to strip out the entire lawn because dandelion weeds go well beyond just the top surface. So it's actually trying to get that main tap root removed. Um, there are still some measures that you can do with uh, products called Killex if you're very selective on where your spray applications are, but be very careful with that. There's other things to um, pre-emergence of um, a product called corn maize. It is a corn-based nitrogen feed for lawns, but the gluten that we find in the corn is actually an inhibitor for new development of germination of those seeds. So you don't want to do it when you're seeding your lawn, but if you want to feed your lawn for vigor and health, then you're going to prevent those dandelion heads from anchoring and germinating. It's not going to help you for the ones that are already pre-existing. Those you'll have to deal with. But the other ones, uh, you'll go through. And there's other Killex products, too, if you want a little bit more pristine. Killex does have a, a product that is iron-based, which increases the vigor of the growth of that dandelion, almost to the point where it kind of works its way out. Like, it gets so exhausted, it kind of, you know, cuts itself out. And then there's a lot of uh, Killex ones that are acetate or vinegar-based that will just keep the tops, but it will have to be repeatedly done in an application that you weaken that root. And maybe just for a moment here, Carla, before we take our first break on this special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Canada Day, happy Canada Day, by the way, to everyone listening, just briefly go over for us the process of overseeding a lawn, just in very broad strokes. When we say overseeding a lawn, what are we actually doing? Oh, sorry. Yes, overseeding a lawn is an application of fixing your lawn by adding more seed to it. And I, old school, we used to put topsoil down just 
to put it on. But the, just remember, topsoil, uh, not to to confuse, the topsoil that we get from some lots may also still contain a lot of weed seeds that have been harvested from uh, reclaimed land. So I love using a promotion of using some peat moss. I bust it up, I put it on the existing lawn, and I add my grass seed to it. Now, there is a purpose if you need to change grade of elevation or create a positive grade away from the building, definitely topsoil will create that for you. But if you're just trying to do a good medium for top seeding, uh, peat moss busted up. Usually three bales does a thousand square feet. Just as a little bit of a tip though, do it on a non-windy day early in the morning. So I love busting up the bales and putting uh, probably half a bale in each quadrant of my yard that I do. And once it's busted, fan raked out, I take out my grass medium that works well for those conditions and I broadcast spray those out. But just remember, um, knowing the type of seed that you can put on your grass is also a success story. So if it's in the sun, you would probably blend it with an all-purpose three-way mix grass that has your fescues, your rise, and um, blended Kentucky blues that are in there. So, but if you're in areas that are more shady, Chris, you want to blend to a shade blend grass so it grows in proportion to what sun conditions that you get. And there comes a little factor within there. Uh, when you top dress and seed, we have to give moisture to those lawns for up to 21 days, especially if you're in a three-way blended mix because you have germination at seven days, 14 days, and at 21 days. And another tip too, if you think you want uh, Kentucky blue in your lawn don't do it in patches do it in the broadcast item of it because otherwise when it starts to grow and you do just the patches it's going to look like you have a different type of turf growing in those areas Carla Hersina, of course, is the host of the Lawn and Garden Journal, and I'm sitting alongside her today. My name is Chris Sumner, Morning Show co-host. It's a special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Canada Day, July 1st. All the questions that we're asking today have come in via email so far this Lawn and Garden Journal season. We'll take a short break and come back with more after this. This is the Lawn and Garden Journal. Happy Canada Day. It's Saturday, July 1st. I'm Morning Show co-host Chris Sumner. In today alongside your usual Lawn and Garden Journal host, Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. No phone calls today. We're just taking email questions that have come in so far this season. And our next question, Carla, came in via email from Candace. I have two potted hibiscus plants. And shortly after they were planted, the leaves started turning a mottled yellow color. So they were mottled yellow and green and then just straight yellow. And then the leaves fell off. Now, new leaves are growing back, but some of them are doing the same thing. Others are actually making it the whole way and leafing out. We're not overwatering. We move them from a sunny spot to a partly shady spot. Any idea what might be happening? A good indication of overwatering or underwatering. But there may be other factors, too, that may be involved. Now, um, we we talk about change of location, change of growing conditions. That alone is sometimes a stress factor that will play on a plant, especially tropical plants. If you're grabbing any tropical plants right now from your garden centers, you have to remember that these are... Uh, field-grown shaded plants that generally come from Florida that's in here or that's where we get ours from and if they're new on the truck sometimes they have 
they're on a truck for a little bit of a time and then they're in the, your garden centers and it depends on the transitioning too because even at the garden center we sometimes get some yellowing leaves when it's been on a truck for four days and then all of a sudden we take it out into our greenhouses so there is a definite transition period that needs to be done to adapt a plant from one condition to the to the next and even with the re-emergence of some new leaves it's trying to produce more leaves and if it hasn't sort of equated into that new growing temperature or uh, environment, it will maybe still lose some leaves, but it will slowly adapt to those conditions. Now, the other thing that I may, when I'm thinking about this, is if we've transplanted it, some plants, if they get transplanted too deep, that is a, a double whammy too. So I would recommend that if Candace check her pot, make sure that the original root ball of that because hibiscus is not just only an annual in our in our temperature climate up here it's also a tree and trees do not like having their primary root ball covered with any additional soil or mulch or plantings it's similar with palm trees hibiscus oleanders you have to consider that these are trees in their natural elements so starting up with that and if we uh, planted it did we open up the root ball so that the root ball is able to uh, join into the new soil that's around it and watch to also the size of the pot that you're bumping it up to because most plants when they're crop field grown they like to have their roots snug we call it that snug factor that actually says my roots are nice and homey now I can produce lots of flowering on the upside portion of me so if we've gone to a size of a pot slightly bigger that could compound compound some of the stress that's on there but we definitely if you do any transplanting of any tropical i call it the 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 messy hair day take that root ball roughen up the sides and the bottom so that the roots get more open and more welcomed into the new medium of soil that you're putting into but most importantly that original soil level has to be maintained at the top well, we'll transition now to talk a little bit uh, of veggie garden. We uh, don't get a ton of veggie questions outside of tomatoes, Carla. We all know we get lots of questions about tomatoes. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> but this email question was specifically about radishes, okay? So this question came in via email. My radishes always seem to go straight to seed and never produce any actual radishes to eat. I get decent emergence quickly and beautiful green tops, but those tops then go to seed and there's no radishes in the soil. What what am I doing wrong or what can I do? Well, radishes are a little bit on the cool crop. We call those cool crop plants. And they perform best, just like our spinaches and sometimes early crops of lettuce, to be sown in the garden earlier than what we think. So they can go into the ground much earlier because their short their um, their span of germination to crop is narrower. So you could do successive seedings of that, but getting it into the ground when they're growing, I usually like to say if you have um, you know eight degrees, six degrees, I like putting my uh, seed tape, and seed tape is a, a nice one to do because then you get equal spacing. But laying it in the soil earlier because they grow best at 10 degrees, 10, 12 degrees when the temperatures are more cool. There's less chances of that uh, seed to take right from seed to green to bolt that's on it. It's usually high temperatures that will cause the bolting action that we see in radishes and also in uh, some lettuces 
and also some spinaches. That what we th- consider as the true red radishes. There are some varieties, and if you look in, um, it's the oriental radishes, which are not the round ones, but they're white and a little bit more elongated. They have a little bit less tendency to bolt if our temperatures are warmer. So you might not have a red radish, but at least you're going to have the taste of that radish and go white. Well, we have to uh, definitely talk about uh, tomatoes because we can't have a lawn and garden journal in the summer without talking tomatoes. So with the conditions that we have seen so far this year, it certainly has been hot. Primarily, it has been dry. I know we talk a lot about disease concerns in tomatoes specific to blight and that kind of stuff and making sure the water doesn't splash up on the bottoms. What are some of your general tips for us as we really get into that fruiting season of tomatoes? Well, keeping to a regime, because sometimes even though we get the blights and the tomato blossom and rot that's on there, the other thing that is could be happening too with excessive heat and lack of moisture is the cracking effect or distortion in shape. So keeping uniformity of moisture on the plant, again, if you have a soaker hose that you can put in there that aims it downward, and I'm not talking blasting, slow, steady water downwards that's on it, um, will assist that. The other thing that, um, you know, I'm going to go back to where my dad and mom used to uh, cut the grass and leave it in bins and make it dry, almost straw-like. But there are some, there's a really good product called garden straw. And it's not like the straw that we get in the fall that has been baled. This is clean, chopped straw that's been screeded for weeds and seeds. And it's wonderful to put under vegetative crops and or edible crops to keep the ground moist longer cooler so there's less stress so i would strongly suggest if you're wanting to do it on the uh that portion of it a bale of garden straw goes a long way and actually at the end of the season too uh you can turn it into your garden as a garden amendment and quickly carla are you more of a beefsteak tomato eater like sandwiches or are you more of a cherry or grape tomato eater Oh, do I have to choose? They're so good. <laughs> like I, I don't know. I guess I grow a little bit of both because I have got, I've got my grandchildren. I've just got to convince them, a couple of them, that a green tomato is not a ripe tomato. <laughs> so they just think that green tomatoes should be picked too as well. But uh, no, I love the cherry tomatoes. Uh, they're perfect for salads and popping. One of the other one that I love is uh, little yellow pear. Uh, the kids like it when I slice up just in half yellow pear and some of the small. Uh, sweet millions or sweet 100s and just toss them with a quick bit of cheese that makes a quick salad. But you cannot beat the taste of, uh, you know, the beef steaks, they're good, big slicers, but a handheld apple-sized one, perfect with a little bit of salt. Got to watch it at my age, but I still put the salt on. (laughs) Carla Hersena, host of the Lawn and Garden Journal from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. Of course, she is here on this Canada Day, July 1st. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting alongside her today. The reason being, it's a special email edition of the show. No phone calls today, but we will return next week. Carla will be in studio July 8th, and you'll have the opportunity to call her and ask your questions then. We're going to take a short break, come back with more emails in just a bit. This is the 
Lawn and Garden Journal with host Carla Hersina and special co-host, I guess you could kind of say, Chris Sumner from The Morning Show. It's his special email edition of the show. By the way, happy Canada Day to everyone listening today. It's July 1st. Summer is really here now, and we have a special email edition of the show. No phone calls today, but next week on the 8th, you'll certainly have your opportunity to dial in and connect with Carla. All right, Carla, time to go back to the emails. This one's coming from Linda. I have a shade garden and am looking for perennials that would do well with the plants I already have there. What does she have? Bleeding hearts and ferns. She says, I need something for the back of that perennial garden, so maybe something a foot tall or higher even. What would you suggest considering the fact that she has bleeding hearts and ferns there and she wants to put this to the back of them? Well, there's the different textures, and we know that perennial gardening in the shade is a little bit more trickier because, A, some of them don't always bloom as much as the ones as a full sun. So I would probably steer her to a couple favorites that I have. Um, Now, the question would be, is it deep shade or part shade or dappled shade? Because these all play different characteristics of what would be successful. You know, there's so much between part sun, part shade, you know, there's that. So that would be a question. So the other thing is, some of the ones that we may focus at is if you've heard uh, Ligularia. I know it's it's a tongue twister, but Ligularia have dramatic, big leaves, almost Neanderthal. And some of the undertones of the leaves are actually this reddish tone. So when they blow in the wind, you get that little bit of a lift of the leaves and the color texture. But some of the blossoms that is what distinguishes whether you get uh, different varieties. There's smaller leaf uh, varieties. You get Brit Marie or you get the Rocket. The Rocket, of course, the name says it all. There's tall spire yellow spike blossoms that come up. And it could cap at four or five feet tall. So Japanese anemone is also one of the ones that is going to give you a kind of a little bit of a daisy look, light flower. Uh, Look for one that's called Honorin, which is white. And white in the shade will just bring you and draw you deeper into those darker, shadier areas, which would be welcoming. Again, there's varieties of Aruncus that look kind of like Astilbes, but they go tall, and you can grow them quite tall. Um, And, of course, Astilbes, variances in sizes from, you know, one foot, but then there's the other old varieties that you can place in the back that will go three to four feet tall. Of course, also, there's so much to choose. Um... Also, monkshood, aconitum, aconitum napolis, which is this dark, dark blue. Maybe pair it with uh, the anemone so you have this white of the blue and then the dark purple intense. So that works well. But just uh, be cautious with the aconitum because it does have a little bit of a toxicity effect. That So if you have cats or children, you always have to investigate which ones would work. And of course, for further back, why not choose maybe a large growing hosta, maybe in a blue tone? Oh, you got me going with purple, blue, and white. I, that's <laughs> going to be a pretty little garden. Well, and I was going to actually bring up hostas there, Carla, because, again, I, I'm kind of a, a dabbling green thumb. I do take a lot of passion in my annual uh, flower beds and my veggie garden, but I do have a fair number of hostas, and to me, a hosta is a hosta is a hosta. But I got a feeling, Carla, you're going to tell me, Chris, you're way off base here. There's so many different types. 
there are so many different types. It is so hard. Like right now, I've got catalogs all over my desk, believe it or not, for 2024. And I quickly flip to the hostas. I kind of probably over order hostas every year because the intensity, the color form. So you can get little tiny petite ones that grow six inches or you can get large dramatic ones. I just had a gentleman in the other day that said that he was just loving one of his hostas. I can't remember the name of it. And he said at full maturity right now, it's four feet wide and almost, almost 40 inches tall, dramatic imagine large dramatic leaves like that and they're not just for the front they are welcomed to the back of the border too as well and creating this undulating flow of high and low the low don't always have to go to the front if you have a deep enough bed in the landscape design aspect of it if you have a deep enough bed why not make something lower further on and put some step stones that venture you that take you to the lower side behind something that's tall make an adventure in your garden a uh, question about lilies. Obviously, lilies are a uh, perennial, but would they fit in a shade garden or do they need at least part shade to really do their best? They do well if they have a little bit of a dappled sun, they'll do okay. If you have a little bit more area of if you have early morning sun, afternoon shade and late evening sun, they'll do well too as well. I always tell people I love full sun gardens, but just remember I can do well in a full sun, but if I have an opportunity to stand in the shade every now and then to cool myself off, I do much better. And plants do the same thing. If it is meant to be in full sun, six hours to seven hours total is the equivalent of a full sun plant. Now, succulents would probably take a little bit more, but those plants will still come up. If they're in early morning sun, they'll probably come up a little bit slower in the spring but then you're extending your garden. And those plants that have a little bit of a reprieve in the afternoon from that hot blazing sun, don't blow their flowers or their blooms as fast as those that have a little bit of a part part shade. Wanted to ask you, and I'm not sure if this particular variety fits into this conversation of a shade or a part shade garden, uh, but something that I believe is commonly referred to as hens and chicks. Could you, could you share some details of that with our audience? Yeah, hens and chicks. That's uh, I go back years. There used to be one variety that I uh, I used to always see along one of my neighbors when I was a kid, and I always wondered where did we get these from because they survived. They're a a perennial succulent that loves um, in hot locations. Those I would probably make sure that I balance it well with the hot afternoon sun and give it as much sun as you can. And hens and chicks look like these rosettes of succulent blooms. And they do flower. They will have a conical upright uh, flowering that comes from this plant. And the offsets or the little babettes or babies will come from the sides. They do function well for rock gardens, uh, even on rock walls. Some of the varieties can be tucked in there. And one of the things that uh, I love pairing with the hens and chicks or Semper vivums is dragon's blood sedum. So you have this weaving through this and some of those colors of this hens and chicks. Remember, they may be green in the summertime, but a lot of varieties as the temperatures go cooler in the spring, or again, when we reach those temperatures that cool off in the fall, those Semper vivums are going to change color. They'll have more of a, a, a brightness to them, whether they go pinks or into reds. 
One more email question here today for our special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal, Carla. This one's coming from Dave and Anna, and here we go. Our columnar cedars are are getting so tall that the branches are starting to separate and don't look as nice as when their branches were close together. Is there anything you can recommend, Carla, to bring those branches back together or to help those cedars look a little more full? Or is this just a case of that's how those tall column looking cedars end up going? I think the question, Chris, would be how old are they and how tall are they? Because in some instances, if they're six and eight feet tall and they're still relatively a newer plant, by tying and bringing them and supporting them closer together will strengthen those branches to be more in the upright aspect. But I must admit, if they're the old Brandon pyramidal types, they generally need as much light all the way around them in order to produce more leaf or uh, foliage deeper further into the plant. They have a tendency to very sort of bald out in the center if you're going into the inside of these plants because the sunlight doesn't get to it. Uh, if it's at a point where you could do a little bit of tip shearing, and that generally was done in June, then you could shear it and make it a little denser and thicker that's on there. For those that are quite tall, yes, I admit, I have a few of them that are about 35 feet tall in my yard, and they do have a tendency to open up. They don't look like the pristine young ones that have been sheared and shaped, but they do carry a support in the garden by giving character and a vertical effect. It does seem that with cedars, there is that issue as they age that they don't look as full and things start to bald out in the middle. And and really, I'm thinking that's just kind of how life is with them. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. And um, the one encouragement, too, that's on it is when you get them and when they're younger is to encourage more branching by doing a little bit of a more tip shearing that's on them. But it has to be started early in its cycle. And at some point, you're not going to be able to get on the ladder to shear and and tip them. So at that point, that would be the cycle of where they're going. I would suggest, Carly, you haven't been to the top of your 30-foot cedar in a while? Not at all. (laughs) That's that's like six people above me at my height. (laughs) Oh, yes. Carla Hurston, of course, from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center, your usual host for the Lawn and Garden Journal Morning Show co-host Chris Sumner, along Insider today for a special email edition of the show on this Canada Day, July 1st. One last break, and then we're back to wrap up the show. Hold on. And thank you for listening on this Canada Day, Saturday, July 1st. I'm Chris Sumner. It's been a special email edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal with host Carla Hersina from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. And yes, Carla will be back next week to take your questions via phone. She'll be in studio and you can reach her at 1-800-374-3315. Again, that is next week. And as we always do, Carla, you usually wrap up the show, so I pass things over to you. Thank you, Chris. I wish everyone a happy Canada Day and we'll be back July 8th on the Lawn Garden Journal. Bye-bye, everyone.